Um, so we are, we are starting, I'm, I'm excited, we're starting, Lord willing, a journey from the start to the end of the book of Daniel. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open it to the book of Daniel. It's one of the major prophets after Ezekiel. Um, but we will have it on the screen in a minute when I read it. But I just want to start out and I want to ask you a question. And that question is this, what event or, or what circumstance would have to happen, whether in your life or in the larger world, what would have to happen for you to, to entertain the thought or maybe even actually believe that there is no hope anymore? So what event, either personally or in the world, for you to say, there's literally no hope. This happened and there is no hope. What, what would that be? I mean, maybe it's the continual presence of a worldwide pandemic, Maybe if we're 10 years down the road and we're still wearing masks and getting boosters, maybe say there is literally no more hope for this world. Or, or maybe it's a personal tragedy, the, the loss of a loved one, a spouse or a child. If, if I lost this person, I would have no hope anymore. Or, or maybe it's a, a midlife crisis. Maybe it's an event or a, a series of events that totally destroy your life plans when your world crumbles and all that you thought that would be can't be anymore, is that when you would say that hope ceases to exist? Maybe it's the demise of our country. Maybe it's the thought of the, the current trajectory of our culture continuing, continuing indefinitely. Maybe it's the thought that, that the country that we're living in has not only abandoned but has demonized its long-held commitment to, to biblical morality. I mean, let's be honest, we live in a culture where children are being taught that boys can be girls and girls can be boys and that sexual freedom and sexual expression is the epitome of being human and that killing unborn human life in the womb is actually a moral good. I mean, this is the culture, this is the trajectory we're on. And we live in a culture, in a society where the popularity and respect for several recent presidents wasn't affected one ounce, even though they were both well-known, unfaithful adulterers. People didn't care. I mean, when our nation experiences this kind of shift and we say, well, if we keep going this way, there's no hope. Or maybe it's something else, whether it's personal, whether it's in the world at large. I would imagine that for all of us here, there's a scenario that would at least give us pause at the thought of hope still existing in our lives and world. Well, friends, brothers, sisters, the good news for us here this morning is that there is always hope. There's always hope, regardless of circumstances or scenarios. The good news for us this morning is that with God, there is always hope. Always. So let me invite you to to draw near and give heed to the prophet Daniel, regardless of, of what's going on in your life or this world, regardless of your concerns or anxieties or fears. Let me assure you there's hope for your marriage problems. There's hope for your life even after tragedy. There's hope when your dreams actually come crashing down and chaos and and confusion ensue. There's actually hope for your life after you've made unmentionable number of mistakes. There's hope in the world in the midst of political chaos. There's hope. As we turn to the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter one, we're gonna see from this chapter here this morning that there is hope in Babylon That's the title of the sermon, There is Hope in Babylon. And because there's hope in Babylon that we're going to see from Daniel chapter 1, because of that, because there's hope for Daniel and his friends in Babylon, there's certainly hope for us as God's people where we are here and now. 
Okay, there's hope in Babylon. I want you to be encouraged as you leave here this morning. Well, let's, let's read this. You can follow along. Like I said, it'll be up uh, on the screen in just a minute. But, but if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open your Bible and, and follow along as we read. Because throughout the sermon, I'm going to be saying, look at this verse, look at this verse. Um, so you can follow along as, as I read. But Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 1, so bear with me. And do your best to, to be attentive to this reading of God's word. So Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, that is Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, Without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with all knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They, these youths that were were exiled, were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hanani he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore Daniel asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So would you, Daniel, endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, so someone else, to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, test your servants just for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and, and, let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with us according to what you see. So he, that is the steward, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. Verse 17, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, that's the end of the three-year training, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, let's pray before we look at this chapter. Father, my prayer is that you would encourage us, your people, this morning. We know that we need hope. We need hope to, to persevere on the road that you've called us to here and now. And so I pray that you would minister to us through your word today. Give us hope. Remind us of the great hope that's ours this morning through this, your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
Well, there's, there's three headings here, three sections that we're going to just work through this, this chapter, one section at a time. And so if you're taking notes, the outline will be verses one through seven. We see exiled. So, so we, we see the setting of Daniel where, where they're exiled. Then second, we'll go through resolved where Daniel and his friends resolve not to defile themselves in verses eight through 16. And then thirdly, we'll see preserved or, or protected. We'll see in verses 17 through 21 that the Lord preserves Daniel and his friends. So let's start there with verses one through seven and exiled. So we, we, we'll look there at verses one through seven. And, and in this first set of verses, we're introduced to the setting. So the, the stage is being set in Daniel chapter one. Now to understand the significance of the setting of the book of Daniel, we, we actually have to take a trip a little bit further back in the history of Israel. So look at verse one, where it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, where it says king of Judah, that tells us something about what's going on in Israel. Because if there's a king of Judah, if you understand the history of Israel, that means there's also a king in Israel. So, so there's a king in Judah, there's a king of Israel. This one kingdom has been split. And that was the case in Israel ever since King Solomon. So if you remember the first king of Israel, this is, before, this is after Abraham and after Moses. This is Samuel the prophet. He, he anoints the king of Israel, the first one, King Saul. King, second king of Israel, the, the most well-known is, is David. David is the second king of the unified kingdom of Israel. And then after David comes his son Solomon. And Solomon is, is the high, at the height of Israel. But after Solomon, there, there's, 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 there's laboring or lobbying for the throne, for the king. And there's actually a split. And there's Rehoboam and there's Jeroboam. And from them on, the kingdom is split. And so there's, there's, a, there's two tribes that are Judah, and then there's 10 tribes that are Israel, and they are divided. And so there's a king of, over Israel, and there's a king over Judah. And so the one people are split. And what you should know about the, the history of Israel is that save a few of Judah's kings, every one of Israel's kings and the vast majority of Judah's kings were evil. They were evil. They walked in the sins of their fathers, the refrain you'll see over and over in, in, the, the, book, in the Old Testament records of of the history of Israel. They were large, they, they were by and large evil, sinful kings that did not lead the Israelites to follow the Lord. The Judah was not led to follow the Lord by the vast majority of their kings. And so it's in, in this context that you have prophets. So the kings aren't leading the people the way they're supposed to be, so God sends prophets. And, and don't prophets speak the word of, of, of warning and the, and the people say, oh yeah, of course. We're, we're disobeying God, let us return. That's not what happens. The prophets again and again say, repent and turn. You've forsaken the Lord. You're worshiping other gods. Don't do this. Punishment is coming. The Lord's not going to keep going. He's not going to let you go for indefinitely. And they persecute and they, 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 they uh, rebel against or ignore all of the prophets. But the Lord is warning the Israelites, if you don't return to me, you're going to be judged. And so both Israel and Judah continue in their paths of rebellion, and the Lord eventually carries out his promised judgment against them. And so in the Old Covenant, remember, this is in the book of Deuteronomy, there's, if you obey, if you keep the law, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. Well, the time came when the Lord said, you, you're cursed, it's time. And the judgment is, it takes the form of, in both cases, in both Israel and Judah, in the, the form of invasion by foreign nations. And so they're conquered by pagan countries, by other nations. They come in and they conquer them. And that's the event in Daniel 1. This is the beginning of the exile of Judah. 
King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he conquers Judah. He actually would invade Judah three times. This is the beginning. In a short period of time, he would eventually totally destroy Jerusalem and the temple. But here is the beginning. He's, he's conquering God's people. Now, Israel would also be conquered by the Assyrians. They, they, at this point, they've already been conquered, and they would never return the land. At least for Judah, they are able to return later. But when you see verse 1, it says, During the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and besieged the city. We know that the Israelites are being sent into exile specifically because of their failure to be faithful to the Lord. So the Lord is behind this, which is why we we can't miss the beginning of verse 2. So look there at verse 2. If you have the ESV, the first four words are, And the Lord gave. Now, regardless of what translation you have, it's going to be something like that. Maybe the Lord handed. But, but the point is, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, this king of Judah, over to Nebuchadnezzar, which means the Lord is behind this exile. Which means the Lord is giving his king and his people into the hands of their evil enemies. And so, so no matter what it looks like on the human level, this, this, it's not ultimately a matter of a, a bigger army or better weapons or anything else. This is a, ultimately a matter of God exercising his sovereign control in his world. And he says, Judah, you're going to be conquered by an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, of course, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to invade, and yes, he and his army were powerful, but those facts notwithstanding, the Lord gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. And we're going to see that all throughout. Stick with us. All throughout Daniel, we're going to see the sovereignty of the Lord. But there's hope in Babylon because even as they're being exiled, the Lord is in control. I mean, think about the history of Israel. It's been wrapped up in the land and the temple, the promised land and the place of God's unique dwelling. That's Jerusalem and the temple. And and here in Daniel 1, you have this evil, proud king who just waltzes right into Jerusalem and says, okay, I'm I'm, going to end all of that. He begins with the royalty and the use. He's eventually, like I said, he's going to destroy Jerusalem and exile all the people. But God is in control. And notice even verse 2. It's a surprising as it continues that, that Nebuchadnezzar even takes some of the vessels of the house of God. So he takes some of the, the vessels that have been set aside for the, the worship of God in the temple and he sends them back to the house of his God and places them there. And so the Lord is behind this, but the Lord in, 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 in instigating and causing this conquering, he is in fact being humiliated before the watching world. Because in that world, when, when a people are conquered and, the, and the, 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 the things that were used in the temple worship are sent back, that shows authority. And so the human eye, as Nebuchadnezzar is sending these, these, these things that were used in the worship of, of Israel in their temple, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar has the power and Judah is just a weak little people, which says something about their God. So Judah and their God has been conquered. Well, that's the point here. There's hope, even when it appears all hope is lost, because we know that hope isn't lost. The Lord is actually behind these vessels being sent back to Shinar. So as those are being sent away from Jerusalem, Daniel and his friends, surely there's hopelessness and despair. They're they're being led to a foreign land away from Jerusalem where the Lord's temple dwelt. And so they're going, being sent away. And that's the setting. But but as you look, as as verses 3 through 7 continue, the, the focus begins to narrow. And now we're introduced to these main characters. Verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, who's this chief eunuch, someone in his, in his court who has authority, and he says, hey, bring some of the best of the best, the cream of the crop of this, this city that we're invading, 
bring them back to Babylon. And notice he says that this would have been common practice. To invade a nation, you say, I'm going to take all your young people, all, all the people that, that are without physical defect, all the people that are, that are sharp, that are smart, and, and I'm going to bring them back, and we're going to train them in the ways of Babylon, and then probably Nebuchadnezzar is going to send them back and say, okay, now you rule as a Babylonian emperor over your land. Right? That, that's, that's common practice, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar is, is doing here. To, to get the best of the best and, and brainwash them, indoctrinate them in the ways of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians, and then say, okay, go, go be my representatives in Israel. And so youths without defect and youths that are really smart. Right? Nebuchadnezzar knows the dynamic that we see at work in our world today, that if you want to change a culture, you've got to capture the young people. Right? The old people, they're stuck in their ways. They're not going to change. But if you want to change something, if you want to change the, the, the culture of Israel, well, get all their young, smart, bright people and then just, just totally, totally transform them and then send them back in. Right? That, that's a powerful dynamic. I think we see evidence of that all around us here today in our, our culture. But, but as, as we look at verse 5 and 7, this is really a, a somewhat akin to a college education. So Babylon is their new campus. They're going away to school. I remember when I was in college, my college minister would preach on Daniel 1 at the, the first talk of every semester. He said, hey, look, you, you've been sent to Babylon, but God's still here. Right? So this is these, these, these young people, Daniel and his friends, are being sent. They even have a meal plan. Right? They don't have to pay for their meals. They have a meal plan provided by the king. And it's going to be a three-year period. And so the king brings them. He says, bring them, and here's what you're going to do. Feed them and teach them, and then, then have them come stand before me, and I'll, I'll see if, they're, if they make the cut. And among these, we, we're told in verse 6, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so the main characters of the book of Daniel are introduced here, and all of them of the tribe of Judah, and all of them are sent into exile under Nebuchadnezzar. And all of them are given new names. This is probably the most significant change that, that's affected here. They're given new names. They're given Babylonian names. And, and in that time and culture, the names are significant. And so these changes of names, these, these Israelite names are things like God is my help or, or the Lord is my judge. These are what they are named. But then they say, okay, that's not your name anymore. Now your name's going to be um, I, the, 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 the random God is my helper. I'm a servant of Nabu or, or whatever. These are name changes that affect the, the very heart of the identity of these Israelites. This process that these four from Judah are undergoing was an attempt not just to teach in the ways of Babylon, but to erase from their memory any hint of the God of Israel. They're sent to Babylon because they're going to they're have a new address, they're going to have a new God, they're going to have a new identity. And so that's what's going on in Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7. I just want to highlight quickly before we move on to the second section, the application point here is there's always hope in Babylon because God is in control. We can't miss that. There's hope even for them, even in this situation, because God is in control. I mean, I thought about if you're a Christian in Afghanistan right now, I mean, are you hopeless? Is the world out of control? Are the Taliban ruling apart from God's sovereign rule? I mean, if I'm in Afghanistan, my only anchor is that God is in control. I don't understand what's going on, but I trust that God is in control. Or Christians in, in North Korea or China. Same is true for us. Whatever happens next in our nation, we need not fear the loss of hope. There's always hope because God is sovereign. There's hope in Babylon. There's hope wherever the Christian dwells on this earth. God is in control. And we're going to see that over and over and over throughout the book of Daniel. So we'll come back to that 
in coming weeks. But, but let's look. Second, resolved, verses 8 through 16. So verse 8, Daniel resolved. He resolved something. He says he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So, so Daniel resolved to do something, and this resolve was not to be defiled, which leads us hopefully to ask the question, well, well what was defiling about the king's food and the king's wine? Now, now just to be clear, there's, there's no clear answer. I mean, depending on who you read, people say, well, here's the reason, here's the reason, here's the reason. I, I don't think, it doesn't say specifically why this food and wine would defile him. Now, some people would say that, that it was a Jewish law, that, that these Jews, though they were removed from Jerusalem, they were still adhering to Jewish customs and laws, so, so that for them to take this food or this wine would defile them. It would, ca- it would cause them to be unpure. Now, that's what some people say. Maybe that's true. Some people will say, well, well, maybe this food was used, as, as would have been common if you're in this, this pagan land, that they believe that, that all their gods had to be filled with their food. So they would offer their food to all their pagan gods. And so may, some people say, well, maybe this food from the king's table was offered to, to all their pagan gods. And they're saying, well, well, I can't eat this. If you're familiar with, with the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Rome, or the letter to the Romans and to 1 Corinthians, talks about this. Food offered to idols. So maybe that was what was going on here. Or maybe some people say, and I think this, if you, ha- if you press me, I think this is probably the most likely. I mean, all of these have, have issues. But, but the, some people say, which I think is probably the most likely, is that for, for whatever reason, Daniel says, okay, enough is enough. These dietary provisions, this food from the king, this, this wine from the king, in fact, all throughout this section, everything is the king's food, the king's, the king's. And so maybe it seems as though he's saying, uh, I'm, I'm drawing the line, and I'm going to make very clear, I'm not dependent on this king. And I'm going to draw the line right here. This isn't a public display. This is all, this is all private that Daniel is trying to, trying to make this, 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 this arrangement. But Daniel seems to say, I, I, I have to draw the line. I'm not going to pledge my total allegiance or loyalty to the king of Babylon. I'm not dependent on that. The Lord will meet my needs. So it seems as though it's his, his loyalty to the Lord that, that he would be defiled. If he, he felt he would be defiled if he did this. Now, again, who knows? The point is, Daniel says, I'm not going to do this. And I'm going to, I'm going to draw the line and he convictionally takes a stand. Regardless of the specifics, he says, I'm going to ask for a substitute meal. I'm not going to eat this king's food. Instead, I want vegetables and water. And in so doing, what he does is he puts his life in the life of the, the, the ones over top of him in a very precarious spot. I mean, I don't think there's any reason for Daniel to be confident that his request is going to be granted. I think he says, this is what I'm, I'm drawing the line, I'm taking the stand, and whatever happens, happens. I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food or wine. So he draws the line and proceeds to ask the one in authority over him if a change in plans is possible. So he says, although, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the, in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So his favor and compassion, I think that would say he, he's not killed immediately. But notice that the chief of the eunuchs doesn't budge. He says, I'm afraid of the Lord. This is, this is verse 10. The chief of the eunuchs says to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So he's saying, well, if I feed you all this, at the end of this time, you're going to be skinny and weak, and, and I'm going to be in deep trouble because I was responsible for feeding you his food. And then the king, yeah, he'll kill you. You'll be dead, but, but he'll kill me also, and I'm not, I'm not willing to take that chance. And so instead of ordering Daniel and his friends to be killed at the request, he just kind of pushes them away. And so Daniel, I think his wisdom is on display here again. He recognizes Ashpenaz is not going to budge. So then he goes, verse 11 to the steward whom Ashpenaz has put over him. So he goes, okay, I'm going to go to someone else. If he's not going to budge, I'm going to go under to, to this guy. 
And he does. He goes and he says, test us. Let's just do a 10-day test. Give us this, the, these vegetables and water and then judge us. Look at us and see. And notice that he says, deal with your servants according to what you see. So he doesn't say, hey, let's do it. And if everything works out, then just let us keep that doubt. He says, hey, let's just test. Do a test 10 days and then examine. And then do whatever you think you need to do after that. So this is the Daniel plan. This is a Daniel plan that he, he submits to, to this, this one over top of him, this trial run, and that's what is agreed upon. He, he, Daniel is confident. He's resolved not to devile himself, and he's, he's confident that his faithfulness, that his loyalty will be rewarded. And the steward was agreeable to his plan. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. I don't think there's any significance to 10 days. I think that's just the time, time of, 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 that you can at least see results. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. They're fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And so the resolve of Daniel pays off. The Lord grants favor, and Daniel and the three friends are able to live loyal to the Lord, even in Babylon. So, so he's not defiled. He's faithful in Babylon. He's given favor. God is with him and enables him to be faithful. And he's rewarded for his faithfulness. And so this is, a, we're, we're again going to see a major theme that's going to come up again and again in the book of Daniel, which is how God's people live in the world. So, so how do we live in this world? And Daniel gives us a, a bit of an example, not a specific example. I don't think we need to have a, a diet called the Daniel plan and say, well, God's going to bless us if we eat vegetables and drink water. Though a lot of money was made off that. If you want to do it, that's fine. I don't think that's the point of the book of Daniel or chapter one. But I think what Daniel does is he shows us how Christians are called to remain faithful in a world that would seek to transform them. He says, I'm going to draw the line. I can't go that far. Yeah, I'll, I'll listen to your, your history. I'll learn your language. I'll even accept a new name. But I'm going to draw the line. And I'm going to stand my ground. And so Daniel is an example of how Christians are called to remain faithful. And so from the second point, I think the second point of application is this. There's hope in Babylon because faithfulness is always possible. Faithfulness is always possible. No matter what happens in your life, in this world, faithfulness to the Lord, loyalty to the Lord is always possible. The people of God are always capable of faithfulness. We must never think that unfaithfulness is the only option for the Christian. We're going to see in a couple chapters. And if there's ever a time that unfaithfulness is, is an option, it would be then when, you, when your death is before you. But we're going to see that's not, that's not the only option. Faithfulness is always possible. We, we must never believe that God would approve of our faltering or our disloyalty. That's not an option for God's people. Faithfulness is always the call, and it's always possible. I mean, I think it'd be an understatement to say that the worldview and the moral and religious requirements of Babylon were incompatible with, with those of Daniel and the Jews. I mean, this very strategy of Nebuchadnezzar was to eliminate the loyalty to God and direct it elsewhere. So he says, okay, you're not serving that God anymore. You're, you're serving our gods. In fact, later we're going to see you're going to worship me. In my statue, that's his, that's his whole purpose. The culture of Babylon was not content with letting the worship of God remain unassailed. So they were going to do all that they could. And they're, they're adamant about removing the worship of God from among God's people. And like I said, and I, I keep saying this, but it's not hard to see the same dynamics at work in our world today. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that as, as American Christians, we find ourselves in a very similar situation to Daniel and his friends in Babylon. The dichotomy between the Christian faith and the faith of our culture at large is very evident. Just look around. Just watch the news. Just, just read 
articles and magazines and books and, and cartoons. Watch your kids' cartoons, right? There, there's a dichotomy between the Christian faith and the faith of our culture. Just like the faith of Daniel is vastly different from those in Babylon, our faith, the Christian faith, is vastly different from those in our culture. And so what we can learn and be encouraged by in the story of Daniel is that faithfulness is always possible. You're never going to be forced to abandon the Lord. Faithfulness is always possible. Now, that choice can be costly. Right? We must not forget that Daniel very well could have been killed for his request. He didn't resolve not to defile himself based on a certain outcome. He didn't say, okay, I can draw the line here because I know that they're going to let this slide. He doesn't know what the, what the, what the authorities are going to say. He based his resolve off a desire to remain loyal to the Lord. I'm not going to defile myself. And he doesn't know what was going to happen. He could have very well lost his life, but faithfulness was what he was called to. And as Christians in this culture, we must resolve not to defile, defile ourselves. We must draw the line. But not only that, we, we need wisdom to know when and where to draw the line because it's not set in stone. There's different circumstances. I mean, Daniel didn't draw the line at learning the language. He didn't draw the line at, at learning the history. He didn't draw the line with having his name changed. The food plane is where he drew the line. And we need wisdom as believers in our time and culture to know when and where to draw the line because where to draw the line isn't always clear. But what is clear is that loyalty to God is always the call and it's always possible. And so that's our aim. Well, let's look finally at the third point, verses 17 through 21. Preserved. So there at verse 17. As for these four youths, that's Daniel and his friends, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Did you notice that phrase there, verse 17? God gave. And did you, did you remember back in verse 2? God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion. And here, verse 17, God gave learning and skill. I don't think Daniel wants us to doubt who's in control here in chapter 1. It's God who's giving. It's God who's at work. It's God who's doing. Can't miss the role of God in this chapter, especially as the book unfolds. You'll see how Daniel is uniquely equipped. Did you notice there at the end of verse 17, Daniel specifically has gifting in understanding all visions and dreams. Do you think that's going to be significant in the coming chapters? If you know anything about the book of Daniel, that is significant. And we're seeing right here, it's God who's given this. And he's going to be used mightily in the courts of Babylon. But according to verse 18, the, the three-year college course ends and Daniel's his three friends are brought before. And, and it turns out they are far better than the others, right? Notice that they're better, yes, of course, than the others in their, their graduating class. But this says they were far greater than any, this is at the end of verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better, not than their graduates, but better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. You see how, how elevated they are after these three years. God is giving them favor and they're 10 times better than anyone that had been serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court for their entire lives. The favor of God is clear. We, we might call it the grace of God is clear. And chapter 1 ends with a mention of Daniel's longtime service. You see last there, verse 21, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which is to say, he closes chapter 1, he wants you to know, number one, Daniel lived a long life. So he served in the courts of Babylon for decades I mean, we're reminded of Joseph. Remember when Joseph found favor in Pharaoh's eyes and he served in Egypt. 
Well, he wants you to know that Daniel lived a long life, 70, 80 years, where, where he was a servant in the courts of Babylon. But, but second, the other thing which is fascinating, I think also what verse 21 should tell us is that Daniel was there when Cyrus came to power, which is to say Daniel outlived the Babylonian captivity. Babylon rises at the beginning of chapter 1. Well, at the end, Babylon is conquered by Persia. Cyrus comes to power. No more Nebuchadnezzar, but guess who's still in the courts? Daniel's there. Daniel's still there. He outlived Babylon and its captivity. The Persians are now in, in, in rule, in authority, and, and there's faithful Daniel who's preserved by God. God preserves Daniel. He keeps him, and in this case, the faithfulness of Daniel is rewarded with longevity. I mean, here in chapter 1, God rescues Daniel and his three friends from the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and he would continue to do it. We're going to see it over and over throughout the book. God rescues the faithful. And in fact, as, as, we, as we open in chapter 1, you know Israel's in exile because of their disobedience, and so you see these four, these four young men from Judah, and you're really left with the question, well, how are they going to fare? Are they going to go the way of Israel and disobey and just cower, or are they going to be faithful? And here at the end of chapter 1, we see... These, these men are faithful, unlike the majority of Israel. They are faithful, and God preserves them. And so last point of application, and we're done. There's hope in Babylon because God always delivers his people. There's hope in Babylon because God always delivers his people. Daniel and his friends were faithful, and they would continue to be. They resolved not to defile themselves here in chapter 1. And the rescue that they experienced, the favor in the eyes of their captors, is what God used to preserve them. He spared them. He rescued them. He delivered them. That's how God chose to rescue them in the midst of Babylon. And while it's true that God always preserves or delivers his people, it isn't true that he delivers his people always in the same way, is it? Listen to how one commentator puts it. Part of a biblical worldview is the awareness that God's people will suffer hardship. While the faith of Daniel and his friends resulted in blessing and favor before others, obedience does not mean things will always turn out well from an earthly perspective. A biblical worldview accepts that God can deliver from death, in the case of Daniel and his friends, or God can deliver through death. You see the difference? Faithfulness of the call, sometimes you're delivered from death, sometimes you're delivered through death. I mean, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about many that the world is not worthy who are delivered through death. Obedience is called for no matter the cost. And so there's hope for God's people regardless of where we find ourselves, whether in peaceful Jerusalem or chaotic Babylon. Hope exists because God is in control, because faithfulness is always possible, and because God always delivers his people. Daniel 1 is not a chapter about dieting. It's about the courage to live out biblical conviction when compromise would be much easier. We're tempted to compromise because we're sinners and sinners need a savior. Daniel believed that Yahweh, that God was better than Babylon and anything that it could offer. Daniel believed that God was better than Babylon and anything he had to offer so he could be faithful to the Lord. So let us then dare to be a Daniel and recognize our utter dependence on the Lord and strive by his grace to faithfully serve him during our time of exile and to do so with hope. Let's pray.